You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the darknet, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Research Saturday. I'm Dave Bittner, and this is our weekly conversation with researchers and analysts tracking down threats and vulnerabilities, solving some of the hard problems of protecting ourselves in a rapidly evolving cyberspace. Thanks for joining us. The research started in 2016 in the aftermath of the DNC hacks. That's Matt Olney from Cisco Talos. The research we're discussing today is titled, What to Expect When You're Electing. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. So we, we started reaching out and kind of fast-forward through just you know, hours and hours and, you know, weeks on site and lots of conversations and reading and learning and, and you know, honestly, some partnerships and friendships built along the way. Uh, and we wanted to kind of, we felt that it was important in today's environment to try to put out a kind of state of where we are and why 2020 looks different to us than 2016 from the election side, from the election kind of infrastructure side. Uh, and try to kind of provide a little bit of feedback into the election space uh, outside of kind of the chaos that is there currently. Well, I mean, let, let's go through it together, and, and let's start with with 2016. I mean, what was the what was the state of things as you were coming into this process? How did you understand how things stood? The, uh, the how I understood it was I, I just knew there was this mysterious thing that elections were, and uh, they were really important, and that they. They had some computerized components. I didn't know anything about it. But more importantly, on the on the election side, you know, there are one of the 
the strict joys of this project has been meeting just the everyday men and women who make election works. And it sounds so corny to say, but it just, they're just your neighbors and they're people that you pass at the grocery store and they're, you know, and they have for decades been worrying about integrity and planning to have an election and knowing they get one shot at it and knowing it is the very fundamental way that Americans express themselves in a democratic society. And, you know, they just, they understand the importance of what they were doing, but what they were presented in 2016 was a piece of threat service and adversary that they hadn't had to worry about before. And it's unfair to ask the average person that you pass in the grocery store to go against the GRU, but that's exactly what was going on in 2016. And there was a complete lack of federal to state to local communications and support in that time. And so when push came to shove, we were caught flat-footed and unready uh, to face that threat and to, more importantly, unready to work together to face that threat. And I think the big the big changes that have occurred over 2016 to 2020 is in that cohesiveness of response. Yeah, one of the things that, that you point out in the research is the importance that we have faith in the system. Yeah, I mean, it is, I mean, I, it, it is not important that I think that, but it's also important that our adversaries think that America is stronger uh, and the West is stronger when the voters in their democracy believe in what they are doing. And, you know, we, we, we had published a previous paper. Um, my parents are, are going to be very proud. Um, if you go into Google and type in Let's Destroy Democracy, I'm actually the first link at the top of the page. Um, and that, <laughs> that paper... It's parent's dream. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so that, that paper um, really goes into how to think about as, as a foreign adversary and kind of what is motivating you. And we talk about, in that piece a lot more about why our foreign adversaries, not just Russia, but also China, view kind of democracy as a piece of the geopolitical stage. And if you're if you're roughly my age, you will have lived in a time where we talked a lot about spreading democracy and, you know, bringing democracy uh, to countries. And that's mm -hmm. part of our geopolitical voice. And if they can damage that piece, then we are less able to use that voice on the stage. And if they can damage the faith the electorate has in its government in a democracy, then that government is less able to deal with international issues than they would be with the full support of the population. Hmm. Now, in the research, you describe the system and the pieces. Can we go through that together, what you're sure. getting at with that description? Um, so the typical work that we do at Talos, I think, is we deal with pieces. Um, we kind of we kind of go, hey, there's this library we know that's popularly used, and we dig and pick at that until we find faults in it, and then we kind of talk about what we found. And and that's that's kind of a I would say that's a pretty typical security approach for peer research, peer security research. But when you get into trying to think like an adversary and, and really trying to defend something, you have to be deeply under, you have to deeply understand the pieces, the voting machines and the ballot uh, assisted marking devices and uh, the electronic poll books and the voter registration database, all those kind of pieces 
plus the typical things you would see in an enterprise environment with the computers and the networks and everything else. And then you have to understand how they're all put together and how they all flow together. How does the state obey the motor voter law? How does it get registrations from the DMV into the voter registration database? What are the regulations for a state when it comes to felons voting? Um, and how are you notified at the Secretary of State's level that someone has been disqualified from voting because of their criminal record? Um, and how are those things processed? What are these kind of inputs to the system? How are we authenticating users? How are, like, there's all these kind of pieces. And so, whereas my typical work kind of is very, in, kind of very kind of piecemeal, um, this in particular was looking at the system across of the Secretary of State's office in the counties and going, okay, this is what this looks like to an attacker, and here's the areas we kind of need to concentrate. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that that impressed me was uh, that you lay out here is is the the spectrum of variety that that you see state to state. You know, like one a small example is uh, in reading your research, I had no idea that North Dakota has no voter registration, for example. Right. We were. I was. I was having another interview. I've had a couple of interviews recently with people who are not in the United States, and and they typically are in countries with this strong centralized authority running elections, um, what we would call like federal running of elections. And I have to explain to them that when we say we're the United States of America, this is the thing we're talking about. This is a collection of states that have come together to select a president. And each of those states gets to decide how they do that. And to a large extent, it's even more complicated. When I walked into um, the Ohio Secretary of State's office, for example, they had maps all over the walls of, of the 88 counties in Ohio. And they were all color-coded and different maps meant different things. But one of the maps that was fascinating was the map of which counties have selected which vendor to go with. So there's not even within a state an agreement mm-hmm. on which voting vendor to use. There's different you know, options available to the counties because ultimately it's the counties that run elections. Secretary of State's offices don't. Hmm. And so how do you begin to distill all of this? How, how, how do you and your team wrap your hands around this broad uh, <laughs> variation across the nation? Well, I mean, part of it is the way that CISA has approached it, that I, if I want to talk to Mississippi or Ohio or Iowa or whoever about their election systems, I have to go there and learn about them first. It's one of the great challenges of American democracy in terms of security is that Every state is different, and within every state, every county can be different. And so voting, like, you know, if you vote in Colorado, you're probably going to vote by mail. But if you vote in Georgia, you're probably going to vote in an electronic voting device. And they're just completely different experiences. And you cannot – it is very difficult to provide unified guidance when systems are built like that. And so that's why CISA essentially has spent the last four years traveling state to state, building relationships and assuring those states, this is the federal government's role in elections. It's limited. It involves sharing intelligence and capabilities and analysis. Um, And this is how we can help you at your request. And much of what's better in 2020 is for the work of people like Matt Masterson and other folks at the at CISA that have spent time building those bridges. 
So what have the changes been since 2016? What, what sort of improvements uh, have taken place? So one of the things that, that I hadn't tracked, but I actually learned um, today, I was on a show in Ohio about election security, and Matt Masterson was on that show, and he actually had pointed out that the auditability of elections has gone up since 2016. So where they had, I think the numbers were something like 85% of the country's votes cast could be audited in 2016. We're now up to something like 92%. Hmm. And so from a technology perspective, we've improved. We've got better voting machines on average out there than we had in 2016. Improvement where it was needed. And one of the weird things about our, our kind of research from a Talos perspective is it is much more about the people than it is about the technology. And so I would say that the designation in 2017 of elections as critical infrastructure was critical. Uh, the creation of the EII SAC was critical. The distribution of, of Albert sensors to states was critical. The time spent by DHS and CISA and the National Association of State Election Directors and the National Association of State uh, of Secretaries of State to kind of bring the election community together to sort of coalesce and, and exchange information and ideas and data and intelligence about the threat and how different groups are preparing for it and to build the capacity to respond to those threats and to share that information and to share resources and capability when necessary is, is probably the most important part. So what I would say is, if something were to happen in 2020, the response would be distinctly different and better than it was in 2016. Hmm. Well, one of the, the interesting uh, things that caught my eye in your research is you have a, there's a graphic with a, a pair of pyramids and one is inverted from the other. One is the, you know, the, the pointy end of the top and the other is the pointy end of the bottom. I mean, it's comparing the resources and the threats and, and kind of the mismatch there between them. Can, can you take us through that? Yeah, and it kind of goes back to the to the grocery store thing where I was saying that these these county employees who you pass in unremarkably at the grocery store and are are just honestly just everyday Americans doing this little part uh, that they had chosen to do are the front lines against foreign interference. And so you have the GRU, uh, you know, the Russian intelligence services, going after the United States, but not at the federal level, not against the military, not against the NSA, not against the CIA, not against DHS, but going against like Jackson County or, you know, small individual counties. And some of them are, are dramatically under-resourced. So you have this world-class intelligence service going after poorly resourced counties in the, in the United States. And there's this disparity between capabilities. And so what we have to figure out, one of the things that I think we're still figuring out, but we're further along, is how do we pull our resources together? There's this great group in uh, Iowa uh, called the Iowa County IT Group. And there are some counties in Iowa that don't have full-time IT staff. And so the counties have agreed to share that capability between them. And so mm -hmm. if, a, and if a county were to lose its only IT person, other county IT staffers would help interview the person coming in for the new position. So it's it's there's there's a ton of different you know aspects to this, but ultimately, on average, you have dramatically under resourced environments, under invested resources, under invested environments, 
and facing heavily resourced adversaries. Yeah, and and I, I you know I often hear this this question of of is the um, the way that our elections are spread out as as you describe you know the state and county level you know is that a feature or is that a bug? Can it be both things at the same time by by having it be so dispersed, a diffuse, I suppose. Um, does that mean that if uh, it makes it harder for a nation state to come at us because there's so many different systems they would have to come at? Sort of. And that was certainly the, um, the early response from election officials were like, well, you can't really hack the election because we're all so different. But if you look back at the 2000 election, um, which was triggered an enormous um, kind of change in how, how we do things. You know, I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was like less than a thousand people stood between Al Gore and him winning, I think, New Mexico and Florida, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. You, you have to, as an adversary, figure out, look, I'm never going to get Maryland to go for the Republican, or I'm never going to get Mississippi to go for the Democrats. So I don't have to worry about those two. I just have to figure out those swing states and which which counties in the swing states I can most easily get in and affect. And that's sort of the thought process that you would go against that. So certainly there is there is something to be said for that that differentiation, um, but I don't think it is as protective as people like to make it out to be. Hmm. Now, how has COVID affected things as, as we're heading into 2020? And I think a lot of folks perhaps had, had expected or hoped that we'd be farther along than we are. Um, how do you suspect that's going to affect things? Well, I mean, it is almost, I would say, kind of displaced this as the central sort of security concern for elections. A lot of it has to do with the politicization of of the postal service and the vote by mail systems. And what we have to understand is we've got five states that have always voted by mail and and have worked out just fine for years. So the real concern is you're you're somewhere around at this point at the time that we're recording this about 44 to 45 days away from some states starting early voting. And so the question is in responding to COVID-19 and changing to more heavily adopt absentee balloting or no-fault absentee balloting or automatic sending of, of ballots uh, and all those options, are states able to prepare in you know the next 45 to 90 days for that dramatically different look of an election than they had before? And so it's about changes that should be relatively simple, but they're changes at scale. And so when you do changes at scale, nothing's simple. And so that's mm-hmm. kind of where we're where we're really looking. So what are your thoughts as we head towards the election? I mean, what, what sort of things do you have uh, your eye out for? What, what, do you have specific concerns? How do you think we're prepared here? My hope is that we're that our worst enemies are external to us, but I'm not certain that that's necessarily the case. Um, you know, when when I initially started this research, we were definitely focused on uh, kind of external actors and cyber. And then we kind of realized that the cyber piece was part of a disinformation campaign more than it was anything else. And so 
then we started worrying about, well, how do we protect, how do we help these organizations, the Secretary of States and, and local county offices, you know, a f- fight a disinformation campaign? And then coming into 2020, where essentially we have actors, both foreign and domestic, engaging in disinformation campaigns. And how do you fight that? Um, and it's and it's exceptionally difficult. And I can I can tell you the 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 local county and state resources, even now here um, on August 20th, you know, months before the election are already exhausted in terms of fielding phone calls, answering reporter questions, fighting back misinformation, disinformation. And, and it's just going to get worse as we get towards the election proper. And so I would just, you know, I would hope that politicians and people who are acting on politicians or campaigns or or special interest groups would understand that to play into the disinformation campaign, to try to sway voters with false facts is fundamentally un-American. And, you know, we, our founders had always thought that a properly factually informed electorate was what would get America where it needs to go. And that's not what they're building right now in many cases. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Our thanks to Matt Olney from Cisco Talos. The research is titled, What to Expect When You're Electing? We'll have a link in the show notes. The CyberWire Research Saturday is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. <laughs>